Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey, Scott. What's cooking? You know, just living the good life, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. This is episode 61. Oh, and I'm sure it's going to showcase some other charming individual who I'm going to just want to be friends with. Well, I, the last one you actually did want to be friends with, Granger Taylor. That's true. Yeah, we and were, I would yeah. love to have met that guy. Yeah, he, yeah. He was pretty fascinating. Yeah. No, this episode is another rabbit hole hmm. with lots of twists and turns, mostly due to the central character being a lying, psychopathic serial murderer. Okay. Yeah, I, I, twists and turns and rabbit holes for sure. In the end, this creep claimed to have killed as many as 17 people across Canada and even the U.S. over a 15-year span. Oh, interesting. Once in custody, this guy claimed responsibility for killings in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, and Seattle. So he's probably our most traveled serial killer that we've yeah. talked about so far. Yeah, okay. He really traversed uh, our Very much our Canadian yeah. and a little dip into Seattle. Yeah. Police sifted diligently through each region's unsolved homicide files looking for possible links. There was some speculation that he was responsible for some of the Green River killings in mm. Seattle, mm -hmm. and he was looked at for murders later attributed to Robert Picton of women from Vancouver's downtown east side. Yeah, yeah. He's someone many have not heard of, but he's a brutal Canadian serial killer nonetheless. His prey were prostitutes and homeless people that he promised to supply with drugs and money, and gay men who were attracted to him enough to invite him back to their homes. Hmm. His name is Michael Wayne McGray. Yeah, already sounds like a, a dick. Uh, anytime, the serial killers so often prey on sex workers and and less for you know, homeless and stuff like that than just people that they uh, believe will nobody will care about yeah uh and sadly that typically ends up being the truth when it comes to the law enforcement and whatnot 
On April 24, 1985, pretty 17-year-old Elizabeth Gail Tucker, everyone called her Gail, was off to her new job at a fish processing plant on Nova Scotia's west coast near Matagan. Leaving her mom's place in Dartmouth, she was traveling light. Her luggage had been sent ahead with her friend Bonnie, so Gail was free to hitchhike the 250-odd kilometers across to southwestern Nova Scotia. Her mom, Mary, was a little worried about her daughter hitching rides so far and offered to pay for a bus ride. The problem was the bank was closed by then and Gail didn't want to wait. At around 5 p.m., Gail got her first ride on the highway just outside the city and was on her way to start the next chapter of her life. A few days later, Gail's mom had not heard from her and became frightened that something may have happened. She reported Gail missing to the police who began looking into what might have happened to the 17-year-old. Over the next few months, they traced Gail's movements via the drivers of the cars who had picked Gail up that day, and there were several. Gail was last seen in the small town of Weymouth, only 32 kilometers from her destination. There was no trace of her after that. Six months later, in October of 1985, a man out walking his dog stumbled upon skeletal remains in the woods just south of Weymouth. A pile of clothing lay nearby. The body had been left out to the elements. No attempts had been made to hide or bury the remains. Dental records would prove this was indeed the body of Elizabeth Gale Tucker. Gale had been brutally stabbed to death. Although multiple suspects were looked at over the years, none stood out as the murderer. Even though Gail's mother refused to give up, she prayed her daughter's killer would face justice one day. This was the end for Gail Tucker, but was just the beginning for her killer. He was just getting started. Oh, yep, nope, don't like this guy. And there's something to be said, like any time a body is found just thrown outside of a vehicle uh, there's usually some pretty strong tells in there again no remorse not trying to gently place them cover them up but hide what they've done and, and a confidence to him just like I just dump the body don't give a shit between 1985 and 1987 our killer roamed around Canada no one had ever questioned him around the disappearance and murder of Elizabeth Gale Tucker, so he was beginning to believe he could get away with anything he liked. There was lots of other crime. Robbery and property offenses, mostly. This put McGray in and out of jail for most of his adult life. Hmm. This sounds familiar yes, again. Yes, yes. He spent lots of time drinking, and there was plenty of drugs. Yep. All common patterns there. Michael Wayne McGray was born in Collingwood, Ontario on July 11, 1965. His family moved to the municipality of Argyle, Nova Scotia, where McGray spent the bulk of his youth. That's between Digby and Yarmouth. That didn't help me. No. McGray, <laughs> sort of the very southern tip of Nova Scotia. Ah, okay. McGray claimed that his father, an alcoholic, would beat him for the slightest fraction in their home and sometimes seemingly over nothing at all. Mm. You know? Yeah. There's, there's alcoholism again. In the definite patterns, anytime we go over these individuals' um, lives and past, there's definitely parts that I, I feel sorry for and empathize when we look at their childhoods. Uh, but a lot of people have terrible childhoods and grow up to be amazing human beings, the majority. Mm -hmm. But it it is, it, it just gives me some ability 
to empathize with them. Uh, but that is usually quickly gone. McGray's rage began to simmer very young. He would get into violent fights at school and was often reprimanded for it. Incorrigible, McGray began to end up in group homes and eventually at the Shelburne School for Boys, a place where the most unmanageable male children were sent in Nova Scotia. Mm. I remember personally being vaguely threatened with boys' school in Shelburne when I was misbehaving at school. And actually, a few of my classmates got sent there. Did you ever see them again? Uh, yeah, some okay, of them I you. saw again, right. but they were guys who ended up in and out of jail throughout their lives. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd be curious to see what the success rate was for schools like that. Yeah, I don't think it was very high. No, I don't think so. Uh, it was in these group homes and the Shelburne School for Boys where McRae said he was repeatedly sexually abused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, quite probable. As a result, his burning hatred for society grew into a bonfire, and he needed to vent it somehow. So he went to therapy? No. Oh. We're going to talk briefly about an outlet that McGray found for his rage, and that was cruelty to animals. Yeah, okay. Uh, we have to mention it as it's an important it, to the story, mm -hmm. but we'll try to keep it brief. McGray began killing ducks and other birds. Okay. He claimed that he killed in silence and that his methods of killing became more elaborate over time. Hmm. In the beginning, he would use his bare hands to kill ducks. However, one day a duck escaped his hands and hurt him in the process. Oh, I like that duck. Yeah, what a shame. Yeah. Uh, that couldn't happen again. So he came across a sharpened chopping knife at school, which he stole. This would make sure he completed his horrific deeds. He began to use the knife to kill the animals. <sighs> How old was he at this point? Uh, he was just... Just a young guy? Just a young kid, yeah. probably, uh, I think it was between 8 and 10. Yeah, okay, that's what I was thinking, yeah. It said that after discovering the sharp weapon, he went on a killing rampage, murdering numerous animals over a few days. Oh, God. He treated his knife like the novelty of having a shiny new toy. After the thrill of killing animals with a knife became stale, McGray was bored and decided... He wanted to kill people. Jesus Christ, that's pretty early on. Yeah. Jeez. He felt it was too easy to just slit the throat of an animal. People, now there was some worthy prey. Oh, my God. I'm just, like, picturing this like, little kid killing ducks and then, like, yep, people. Yeah. But oh. his first murder didn't happen until he was 19, so he was left to simmer there for but quite some time. The fact that at that age, that's a thought that crosses your mind. Mm. Like a, a fantasy that crosses your mind. Yeah. Like, Jesus, holy shit. Uh, just 19 in April of 1985, McGray saw Gail Tucker hitchhiking near Weymouth. He claimed he was with an acquaintance at the time, but even his defense lawyer didn't believe him mm. later on, stating he believes McGray acted alone. When Gail hopped into McGray's truck for a ride, he immediately asked her to perform oral sex on him in payment. When Gail rebuffed him, refusing McGray's advances, he became angry. He drove them to a secluded spot where he tore off Gail's clothes with her fighting him the entire time. There, McGray violently assaulted Gail and stabbed her to death, leaving her like so much trash near some bushes. It's hard not to put yourself in the shoes of the victim. It's really hard not to, and just the panic and the fight, mm -hmm. and the poor, poor girl. And think about it, this victim was only two years younger than him, yeah, yeah. so, you know, she might have been thinking, oh, this is a young guy, he's probably a nice fellow, yeah, pulls yeah. up. Thinking that uh, maybe I can, we can probably relate in some ways yeah. and stuff. And, and she's close to where she's going, yeah. like, 
maybe she can talk to him about where she's off to. And Yeah. Ugh. Although there was a two-year gap between murders, some, including McGray himself, claimed he was drifting between the East and West Coast doing as he wished. On November 14, 1987, McGray was back in Atlantic Canada. He and two other men, Mark Daniel Gibbons and Norm Warren, made a plan to rob a cab driver. Mm-hmm. When the taxi showed up, Gibbons got into the front seat and Warren and McRae were in the back seat. <sighs> they told the cabbie where they wanted to go and when they reached their destination, the three confronted the cab driver. Gibbons pulled a knife and told the driver this was a robbery. The cabbie made a motion to go for something in his jacket and Gibbons stabbed him in the hand. Holy shit. The robbery now botched. The three men got out of the car near Market Square Mall and ran off. The cabbie called police. Well, I would imagine, yeah. yeah. Bleeding from the hand, you yeah, know, yeah. this violent attack, assault. Attack. Yeah. Yeah. Police began to scour the area looking for the three crooks. Inside the Market Square Mall, a janitor found the body of Mark Daniel Gibbons. Okay. He had died from a single stab wound just under his heart. Okay. Wow. Okay. This is bizarre. The next day, perhaps in an effort to throw police off their scent, Gibbons' pals, McGray and Warren, called the police to ask about Gibbons' whereabouts. Hmm. Police traced the call and found Warren and McGray in the Germain Street apartment. The pair bolted, and after a brief chase, they were taken into custody. Good. McGray, who was known only for theft and robbery at the time, convinced the cops that, in fact, it was Warren who had murdered Gibbons. I'm trying to visualize the, or think about the reason why. Like, I'm assuming they were trying to set him up to be... The girlfriends of the men, who were also at the apartment, made statements to the police that backed up McGray at the time. Okay. Police felt that Warren had been the actual killer of Mark Gibbons, mainly due to the fact that Gibbons had screwed up this uh, robbery. It should have gone way easier than that. But, yeah, yeah. you know, now they're all going to be in trouble for assault. Yes. With a deadly weapon yeah, and yeah, robbery. Yeah. As Warren was known for violent crimes and had already spent 17 years behind bars for those, it was an easy sell to the Crown that he was a murderer. Okay. Warren, however when tried, was found not guilty of the murder. But he was sentenced to 11 years behind bars for his part in the robbery. Okay. McGray was sentenced to five years for his part in the robbery as well. So neither ended up charged or convicted of, of, of that murder. What? Okay. McGray would later admit that it was in fact he who had stabbed Gibbons to death during an argument over the robbery gone wrong. Okay, so you're saying it was an argument. Okay. The investigation was reopened after McGray's confession. According to Inspector William Reed of the St. John, New Brunswick Police Department, once McGray and Warren had returned to the Germain Street apartment, McGray had pulled out the knife that he'd used to kill Gibbons to show the girls that were there. Mm. He instructed them to clean the knife and then proceeded to brag about killing Gibbons. McGray had told the girls that they had better back up his story that Warren had killed Gibbons or else. Yep, and as we know, if somebody who is a murderer threatens to murder you, you, you take that seriously. Yeah. The girls, according to Reed, told as much as they could tell without implicating McGray in the death of Gibbons. According to Reed, these girls had suffered a lot of violence through their lives, and as well, mm. they had issues with alcohol and drug use. Yep. As well, they were afraid of McGray, of course. Exactly. This is why they didn't implicate him in the death of Gibbons. Yeah. The girls felt that if he had already killed someone, just like Scott said... He would do that to them if yeah. they told on him. Yeah, it's not idle threats when you know this person's a killer. Exactly. 
So, off to jail with Michael Wayne McGray. Well, that's great news. However... Only for five years, though. In the spring of 1991, Michael Wayne McGray was serving time in a minimum security facility in Quebec. He somehow managed to wrangle a three-day pass that allowed him to travel to Montreal for the upcoming Easter weekend. Well, I'm guessing because he was arrested for robbery, not murder, charged for that. So, yeah, it's yeah. all property so crime. It, it, yeah, yeah. yeah that, it seems easy to give him a pass. Sure. McGray checked into the halfway house that he was supposed to in Montreal, but he didn't stick around long. On Saturday, McGray went to a gay bar in Montreal where he met 59-year-old retired school teacher Robert Assley. The two men drank and talked about hockey. Assley was excited by the attention of the mustachioed 26-year-old McGray and invited him back to his Nuns Island condo. Is that a, an area, Nuns in Island? In Montreal, yeah. Oh, okay. The pair shared more drinks and watched TV on the couch together. Whether they engaged in sexual activity is unreported. McGray mm -hmm. claims he fell asleep on the sofa and woke up at around 6 a.m. the next day. Robert was in his bedroom getting ready for the day. McGray took a knife from the kitchen, brandishing it at the older man, and ordered him to lie down on the floor. Oh, again, a poor panic and fear and ugh. Well, Astley thought that McGray was joking and he laughed at him. Oh, okay. McGray flew into a rage, bludgeoning the retiree in the head with a nearby lamp. Hmm. And then he stabbed him 16 times in the chest and throat. Well, I can get the thinking he was joking. You just literally spent the night with somebody and the next day they're like, uh, it's not like it was just some stranger who walked in. Like, you just spent time with the person. Yeah. So you can think they're joking around. Like, ha ha, very funny. And who expects to be actually murdered? No. Yeah, not this guy. Yeah. By, and by that I mean me. McGray calmly read a Montreal transit map to figure out how to get back to Montreal's gay village. Is that what it was called? The, the gay village? That's what he called it. Oh, okay. McGray left the man dead on his floor, taking only a bottle of booze to fuel his next few hours in the city. Robert Astley's body lay on the floor of his apartment until April 7th when his brother Rudy found him. Oh, shit. Yeah, Rudy oh. was, of course, devastated by oh, that. Oh, my God, yes. McGray was not finished. The same day that he'd killed Robert Astley, McGray ended up in another gay bar in Montreal. He was already stalking his next victim, Gaetan Etier, an unemployed salesman. As the lure had worked before, McGray chatted about hockey with Gaetan. The Montreal Canadiens were set to play the Quebec Nordique in the second of a home-at-home -home series. Mm. The Habs won at home yesterday 4-3. It was bound to be a good game. Mm -hmm. So Michael was invited back to Gaetan's St. Andre Street bachelor apartment to watch the game. Sounds great. The two lounged on the pull-out bed, drank wine, and cheered on the Habs. Yep. McGray claimed he turned down an advance by Etienne, who then drunkenly passed out on the bed. <sighs> McGray stayed awake all night, watching Gaetan sleep and considering his next kill. Oh, that's extremely uncomfortable. Just staring Just, at him. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. At 6 a.m., exactly 24 hours after murdering Robert Asselet, Michael McGray grabbed a knife from the kitchen and picked up a beer bottle. McGray smashed the bottle over Etier's head and began stabbing him. As Gaetan fought back, trying to get to the telephone, McGray cut the phone line with a knife. <sighs> McGray went into a frenzy and stabbed Gaetan multiple times until he was sure the man was dead. I can't imagine just being sound asleep and all of a sudden attacked. Mm. Oh, oh. Michael Wayne McGray calmly picked up the bottle of wine the two had been sharing and sauntered out of Etier's apartment, leaving the dead man behind. So both murders in 24 hours 
And not for robbery. No, just to kill. <laughs> okay. For the sake of killing. McGray was now a day late for returning to jail, but had a taste for freedom and wanted more, so he skipped out on the halfway house. Okay. He left Montreal only to be picked up a few weeks later on April 20th, 1991. He was sent back to prison as he'd violated his release conditions. Authorities had no idea that he'd been involved in the two Montreal murders. Oh, wow. And this guy had to be hard to catch because he had no specific victim profile. His, so far, His, his first yeah. murder is a, is a young girl. Yeah. Second is his friend. Yeah. A male friend. Yeah. Which that, he's actually not convicted for or even looked at. Yep, yeah, exactly. And then the third and fourth, two uh, gay victims in Montreal. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's no no um, correlating pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I guess his his signature really is just he killed for the sake of killing. Yeah. Which is a pretty pretty hard hard thing to follow. <laughs> no, that's not really yeah, you can't uh, there there's no narrowing down that in that ammo. Yeah. And with that we'll take a brief break. And we're back. Yes, we are. Between nineteen ninety one and nineteen ninety eight, McGray drifted across the country often landing in jail for one property offense or another. Mm -hmm. Once again, he made his way back to the East Coast. Seems to be where he's most comfortable. Yeah. In 1998, Joan Hicks, 48, and her 11-year-old daughter Nina left their home in Newfoundland and moved to Moncton, New Brunswick. In Newfoundland, Joan had been helping people who had found themselves in trouble with the law. One of these people was convicted and sent to Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick. Joan was writing letters to her friend in Dorchester. She sounds like a very nice lady. This friend told Joan that there were a lot of other guys in the prison that would love to get letters from her. The good-hearted Joan began writing to other prisoners at the penitentiary. She's just trying to be kind. Enter Aubrey Sparks. Okay. Aubrey Sparks had been convicted for killing his wife and was serving a life sentence. He and Joan began writing to each other, and their communication soon blossomed into love letters. Okay. I'm not comfortable, but I'm not here to judge. You know, she's looking for love, right? Mm -hmm. And And maybe she's one of those people who believe in redemption. Yeah, absolutely. And rehabilitation. For sure. And those kind of things. For sure. So, for sure. That's why, like, it's easy to sit on the outside and be critical and judge and say, well, what were you thinking? But... No, we, we've all been guilty of making some uh, irrational decisions that we thought were absolutely right. Yeah, and she was making decisions based uh, on her emotions, clearly. Yeah. She decided to move to Moncton to be closer to Aubrey and to see if the relationship would work. Okay. Her friends and family in Newfoundland were worried and tried to talk her out of moving. Sparks was a murderer, after all. Yeah, no, I can completely understand why they would feel that way and voice it. Yeah, for sure. Joan insisted that she and Nina would be just fine, thank you. And I'm sure she believed it. Yeah. However, out of concern, some of the members of the family asked the RCMP if they would actually talk to Joan and try to dissuade her from going to New Brunswick. That's an interesting, interesting approach. Yeah, I don't think that actually happened, though. Yeah, I don't think they can. Like, it's not their job. Judy Pinsent is Joan's eldest daughter. She was an adult in 1998. In an interview, she stated... I didn't want her to go, but it was her decision to go. According to CBC, little Nina was nervous about moving. Before Nina left, she gave her aunt a picture of herself in her prettiest Sunday dress and said, 
if anything happens to me, put this picture up so people will be able to find me and bring me home. Oh, my God. My heart just sank. Oh. Nina loved going to brownies. Oh, just like my daughters. Sunday school at church and playing with her friends. She was being taken away from all that against her will. Oh, this just hits with me really hard right now. I kind of figured it would. Yeah. Joan and Nina moved into a homeless shelter in Moncton briefly. They didn't even have a place to live. Joan just wanted to move. The penitentiary was just a 34-minute drive away from Moncton, and finally Joan could visit Aubrey Sparks easily. Okay. At the shelter, Joan met a woman named Tammy McLean. Tammy's boyfriend, also in the homeless shelter, was none other than Michael Wayne McRae. Oh, 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 shit, okay. They all became friends. I was wondering how this would be connected. Joan and Nina found a small basement apartment, but Joan remained friendly with Tammy and Michael McRae. (sighs) McRae and McLean would come to Joan's apartment on a few occasions to drink, party, and play cards. Oh, I can see where this is going, and I'm not happy about it. On the evening of February 28, 1998, Tammy McLean called on Joan Hicks. She'd been having trouble with McGray, who was drinking and doing a lot of drugs. She was becoming frightened of him. Joan invited Tammy over to console her. McGray himself was out partying with a friend named Glenn Bennett. They were drinking and mainlining cocaine all day. Late in the evening, McGray said that he wanted to go out and find someone to kill. Bennett, not sure if McGray was serious, decided to follow along. The pair walked the streets of Moncton together, looking for easy prey. Unable to find anyone, McGray led them to Joan Hicks' apartment. They knocked on the door and found that Tammy was there with Joan and Nina. McGray chased Joan off, saying that he and Glenn were going to stay and party with Joan and Nina. Once Tammy was gone, McGray went into a frenzy. Glenn Bennett, stoned out of his mind, claimed all he could do was watch in horror. McGray grabbed Joan around the throat, slammed her violently against the wall, and began to throttle her. Joan fought her attacker, but didn't really have a chance against the larger McGray. As Joan passed out, sliding to the floor, McGray pounced on top of her, beating her furiously before grabbing a serrated bread knife with which he slit her throat. Details of what happened to 11-year-old Nina are cloudy. Both men would point fingers at each other for the young girl's murder. Nina was strangled with a belt on her own bed. She was then hung using a length of rope among the clothes in her own closet. The two men fled the scene and went their separate ways. Uh, this this may anger me more than any any other one that we've done. Yeah, I, I uh, like I hanging her the belt in her closet. Yep. Both of these guys. I don't care which one yeah. did it. They were both there and both participated. Oh my god, I'm angry. Two hours after the crime, Glenn Bennett contacted police, claiming he'd witnessed two brutal murders. So this is two hours later. Mm-hmm. He gave the cops Joan's address as well as McGray's location. Police found Joan Hicks sprawled on her bedroom floor near the bathroom. Her throat had been viciously cut and her pink nightgown pushed up around her head. 
innocent Nina was found hanging in her closet wearing only her underwear. Oh, my God. It's my daughter's age, 11. One of my daughter's ages. According to CBC, the scene of Joan and Nina's deaths was so traumatic for law enforcement that a special team of counselors were brought in to help the first responders deal with the trauma they'd witnessed. Yeah, I bet. I bet. McGray was picked up, and he immediately started blathering. He admitted that he'd killed Joan, but blamed Bennett for Nita's murder. McGray seemed willing to admit he'd killed many people, but not Nina. Perhaps he was afraid he'd broken that prison code of not hurting children. Mm -hmm. He may not have wanted to look like a, quote, skinner to his prison buddies. Oh, and here's some photos of him. And I, uh, you know, it's probably not the best thing to say, but I, I looking at these photos, I, I feel like I would like to shoot him. Well... You probably won't get the chance to do that, so... I, I won't, and I don't think I could, but my... Right now... Yeah, you just are angry at him. McGray also owned up to the 1991 slayings of Robert Astley and Gaetan Etier in Montreal. And finally, he confessed to having killed Elizabeth Gail Tucker outside of Weymouth, Nova Scotia. He knew things about all the crimes that only the killer would have yeah, known. Yeah. Finally, some justice for Gail after 15 years... The families of other victims, too, now had a face and a name of their loved one's murders. All of the crimes had gone unsolved to this point. I can't get out of my head the image of Nina yeah. and then thinking about my oldest daughter. Yeah. Is this the same age? And like, So I'm just thinking about her innocence, innocence. And her just like barely dipped a toe into life. Yeah. Absolutely. And having it taken away to fulfill some sick son of a bitch's gratification. I, I, I... Let's go on. Yeah. McGray was sent for a 60-day psychiatric evaluation in August of 1998. The psychiatric report that was conducted by Dr. John Bradford, a psychiatrist based in Ottawa at the time, stated McGray suffered from a nervous disorder similar to Tourette's syndrome. This sounds like Terry Driver's defense. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And remember how earlier I had said that um, I can often, uh, at the very beginning when hearing these people pass, I can, I can often develop some empathy mm -hmm. for their childhood. You know, it's gone. No, that empathy's gone now. Yep. No. Because of the things that he chose to do with whatever had happened to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, and... You could choose to become an author. Yes. You know, and write that out. Yes. You could choose to become true crime podcasters. Yes. And get what happened to you out that way. Very cathartic. Yes. Yeah. That's what we're doing. <sighs> but and, and like, and then I don't, I don't like the Tourette's excuse. It's yeah, definitely excuse is, yeah. is a good word for yeah. it. Yeah. After his evaluation, McGray was found fit to stand trial. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, he clearly knew what he was doing, and he clearly knew what he was doing was wrong. And yep. so, you're not insane. No. From an article in the Globe and Mail on March 21st, 2000, by Aaron Anderson, quote, Yesterday, in a five-minute proceeding in a Moncton courtroom, Mr. McGray, a beefy bearded man with glazed eyes, settled the first murder charge against him by pleading guilty to killing Ms. Hicks in the first degree. A second murder charge for Nina's death was stayed. While McGray has admitted he was in the apartment when the little girl died, he denies killing her, pointing the blame instead at his friend, Mr. Bennett. By pleading guilty to Ms. Hicks' murder, 
a decision his lawyer, Wendell Maxwell, says Mr. McGray made suddenly yesterday morning. He avoided a jury trial this week on both charges. McGray never spoke in court. He appeared in shackles, flanked by guards who hustled him back to prison the minute the judge had delivered his life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Crown prosecutor Tony Allman told the court that Ms. Hicks was murdered because Mr. McGray got, quote, the need or urge to kill somebody, end quote. It's the need or an urge. Now these people are gone. These yep. lives are snuffed out yep. for a need, need or an or urge. urge. Yeah. People are gone. Yeah. Children are gone. Yeah. I read uh, a thing about one serial killer where he said, the difference between me and anybody else is that I wish I wanted to control my desires. Mm. He has those crazy fantasies that some people have, and most people are able to control their crazy fantasies, like your fantasy to go shoot this guy. Yeah, somebody cuts you off in traffic, and you're like, God, I just want to run them off the road. Right. You don't. But you don't. Well, hopefully. But... Maybe in but yeah, these serial killers, they have these needs and urges and they are... That filter isn't there. That filter isn't there and yeah. they pursue it yeah. to the end. So one of the things I've always said, that's one of the things that most fascinates me and why I've always been interested in serial killers is because a lot of like, we all have those impulses where again, somebody cuts you off in traffic. Somebody says something and you're just, oh, I just want to punch them. Yeah. But we know, no, you don't do that. It's that crazy limbic system, yes. You know, reaction, yes. And then, but but we we can most make, of yeah. us have that higher function where it's just like, yeah, no, it, that's not going to happen exactly. And so I've been, um, it fascinates me. Like all I um, early on, it was always like, oh, I, I really want to find out why these people can't control that, why they cross that line. Mm -hmm. McGray wasn't done confessing during one of his transfers. He informed a police officer that he was willing to confess to 11 other murders that he'd committed across the country and in the U.S. In exchange, he wanted immunity for these crimes. Hmm. He wanted psychiatric help to assist him in controlling his overwhelming need to kill. The police refused the deal, fearing another debacle like the Clifford Olson affair. Yeah, and I like I'm confused by the I, I want immunity. You're already in jail. You're not going to get more jail. Yeah, you well, know, like you know, there's no death penalty. Well, there's a death penalty in the U.S. in Seattle or in, in Washington State. Yeah, but you're not going to be um, Canada won't extradite for that. They extradited uh, Charles Ng. It happens very, very. And Charles Ng was. Sentenced to death. Yes, but it is so rare, so rare that it happens. And it, we yeah. will do Charles Ng and Leonard Lake because he was caught here in Canada. And that was just... Yeah, that that's horrific. Yeah. yeah. Undeterred, McGray began granting interviews to the media. Hmm. A narcissist, you say? Mm, perhaps. Murray Brewster, a reporter for the Canadian press, had a 15-minute interview with McGray... Brewster stated, I can remember hearing how detached he was. There was no ranting. There was no raving. It absolutely blew me away as to how detached and unemotional he was, as though he was just talking about going to the grocery store and what he had picked up. Yeah, you know who that reminds me of? Well, it reminds me of quite a few. Ted Bundy. Uh, Ted Bundy, uh, Green River Killer, BTK. Yep. Yeah, like they, it's just like they're reading a book. 
Yeah. It's cr- uh, BTK's allocution was horrific. Yeah. Just the way he just was like, yeah. And then uh, that project was this. and Yeah. From Brewster's interview with McGray, McGray, it's just something that I really enjoyed doing. And I mean, when it comes out, I mean, some of these murders were just horrendous, right? The only thing that I regret, really, is that it ended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the truth. Yeah. That's finally the truth. And that's what a lot of, and we've talked about it before. I don't remember if on the show, but uh, Wesley Allen Dodd, I yeah. believe. And, and you know how he said, yeah, never let me out because yeah. I will do it again. I enjoy it. That's what this guy was saying, too. Yeah. Brewster asked him, what was your first murder? And McGray said it was Gail Tucker in Nova Scotia. And he gave a very brief, very dispassionate account about what happened. God damn. Here's actual audio of McGray describing the murder. Me and another guy were driving. We just picked her up. She was hitchhiking. And uh, we stopped. I pulled her out of the truck, stabbed her, and left her. And we've already talked that nobody really believes there was another guy. Yeah, and, and I also doubt that, that was just it. But Yeah. Brewster said later, it took my breath away because of how absolutely devoid of emotion it was. In another interview, when asked why he murdered, McGray said, it's like a craving or hunger. It's something I have to do. It gets to a point where I just can't control it anymore. And I mean, I don't dispute that. Like, I don't dispute that that's the case with these individuals. That's how they feel. But, oh. He's very frank about it. Yeah, and, and... And I appreciate that in some some serial killers because you get an actual glimpse into how their brains are are working and whatnot. But um, like just that the casualness of how they describe this stuff, yeah, just insane. Here's some exclusive audio from a global news report in the spring of 2001, after McGray's first court appearance in regard to the murder of, of Elizabeth Gale Tucker. You'll hear McGray himself talking about his murders. We apologize for the background noise in some of the audio. This man might be Canada's worst serial killer. Michael McGray says he has killed people from Seattle to Halifax. Only last year, McGray admitted to reporters he's a multiple murderer, driven by a powerful urge. Sure of that? Yes. Well, as far as I can remember, I mean, they all blend into one another, but I've been trying recently to remember as many as I can, and uh, I got it narrowed down to about 16. Today, he was in court in connection with what he claims is his first murder. 17-year-old Gail Tucker, who was killed in 1985 while en route to a job at a fish plant in Digby, Nova Scotia. There was tight security at today's court appearance. Since McGray's admission to the media, RCMP have taken steps to confirm his story. They are mindful of cases like Henry Lee Lucas, the American grifter who claimed hundreds of murders. Most of his claims were refuted. In Nova Scotia, RCMP took McGray to the scene of the Tucker murder. They're convinced he is telling the truth. In certain things, that the average citizen would not know. Like, for example, that she died a violent death. Well, how exactly did she die? And in this case, the accused was able to provide that to us. Considering his previous confessions, police expect McGray to plead guilty at tomorrow's court appearance. In the meantime, he'll remain in RCMP custody rather than the Nova Scotia Correctional System. Authorities are calling it a security measure. The Crown's concerned about the security of uh, both the public and Mr. McGray. McGray has been convicted of four murders, two in Montreal and one each in St. John and Moncton. He's currently serving four concurrent life sentences in a maximum security prison in Renews, New Brunswick. On May 29, 2001, 
Michael Wayne McGray pled guilty in a Nova Scotia courtroom to the murder of 17-year-old Elizabeth Gail Tuck in the spring of 1985. Judge Joseph P. Kennedy, we've mentioned before as a family friend, uh, was the presiding judge. Mm. Judge Kennedy's wife was the one I got into the car with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember. <laughs> judge Kennedy said in part, We are dealing with one count of first-degree murder, the most serious criminal offense known to law in this country. There are, I guess, ladies and gentlemen, some situations in nature that can legitimately be described as mysteries, as puzzles, as being incomprehensible to the rational mind things that we cannot fully understand. It would seem to me to be true that Michael Wayne McGray is one of those mysteries, perhaps even to himself, would appear to be an evil mystery. How are we to understand, rationalize, what happened to that little girl on that day so many years ago? How can we come to grips with the terrible luck that she had that day to run into Mr. McGray? Hmm, that's some pretty... Fascinating words. Yeah, he's usually very insightful yeah. in, in his sentencing. He's, yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's an interesting guy. He's got like a big, well, I haven't seen him in years, but he had black curly hair yep. and a great big mustache. Sweet. Uh, after comparing McGray to Bernardo and Olson, referring to family impact statements and deeming McGray incapable of being rehabilitated, Justice Kennedy pronounced sentence. He said, The only response then appropriate the only response in law that can be made in relation to this matter is to sentence Mr. McRae to the fullest extent that our law in this country knows, and that is to serve a period of life without eligibility for parole for a period of 25 years. That sentence is to be served concurrently, and that is the sentence of this court. Yeah. So he's not getting, not getting out. No, they won't like, well, again, he's got different... Uh, convictions as well, but yeah, you, you, sure, he might be eligible for parole for, in 25 years, but no. This guy is clearly a dangerous offender. Yeah, no, he, I don't know if he's got the designation, but... Uh, you should. Yeah. Before dismissing McGray, Judge Kennedy also ordered a sample of his DNA to be taken and mm. put into the National Data Bank. Which, Good. Of yeah. course. So yeah. if the guy happens to escape, he's not getting away with much. Yep. Well... There's more to this story. Oh, oh, great. Although claiming to be relieved he was in jail, McGray told anyone who would listen that just because I'm in prison doesn't mean the killing's going to stop. Oh. In the fall of 2010, Michael Wayne McGray was in Agassiz, B.C. at the medium security penitentiary called Mountain Institution. Yeah. On November 22nd, there was a lockdown in the institution as a metal bracket had gone missing from a ping pong paddle. Oh, okay. Officials were afraid that it could be used to fashion a weapon, so the lockdown was to find the metal piece and confiscate it. Yep. During the lockdown, all prisoners are confined to their cells, counted by prison staff, and locked in till it's determined that the danger has passed. Seems like a smart pr uh, protocol. Right. At 2 minutes to 10 in the morning, the morning after the lockdown, Michael Wayne McGray called out to prison staff for assistance. He wanted them to check on his cellmate, Jeremy Michael Phillips, 33. McGray claimed he couldn't wake Phillips. They found the man face down and cold to the touch. 
The prison nurse attended and stated that Phillips had been dead for a while as rigor mortis and liver mortis were present. Mm. Many know generally uh, what rigor mortis is. It's you go stiff. Yeah, I've never heard of liver mortis. Well, liver mortis is the pooling of the blood due to gravity as the heart is no longer pumping blood around the body. Oh, is that what they call it? Okay. Yeah. So okay. the underside of a corpse yep. uh, in liver mortis tends to show large, dark, yes. purple blotches. Yes. Corrections officials and police began to question McGray, and he quickly confessed to murdering his cellmate. In his confession, McGray said that the slaying took place a mere seven minutes after the count, oh. which took place at 10.15 the evening before the body was found. Oh, wow, okay. McGray had forced Phillips to lay prone on his bunk. McGray used shredded bedsheets to bind Phillips' hands and feet and blindfolded the man. McGray shoved a sock into Phillips' mouth and then proceeded to strangle him with another bedsheet. Although the exact cause of death wasn't clear, an autopsy confirmed the mechanism of death described by McGray due to bruising, mm -hmm, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. Wow. McGray had been transferred from the Supermax in Quebec to a maximum security at Kent, also in B.C. I have a friend who works there, or had. I don't think she does now. McGray had spent his entire incarceration in single prisoner accommodations until eight weeks before the murder of Jeremy Michael Phillips. Hmm. Phillips himself had complained to staff that he feared his new cellmate would murder him and had been requesting a transfer. Okay. Unfortunately, Phillips' concerns were not taken seriously. McGray had, in fact, beat another inmate just prior to Phillips' murder. Hmm. That's poor, uh, poor Phillips. I don't know what he was in there for. It doesn't matter. Well, he shouldn't have been killed either way. Could have been a serial killer as well. He wasn't, though. Okay, well, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, yeah, no, uh, yeah, terrible. Here's some more exclusive audio from Global News with Jeremy Michael Phillips' parents speaking about the death of their son. There's also audio of Michael Wayne McGray himself talking about his own lack of remorse. Notorious Canadian serial killer Michael McGray, seen here following his sixth murder conviction, has admitted to a seventh. Everybody asks me, you know, do I have any remorse for the victims and stuff like that, or do I regret it? I'm not going to bullshit you, I don't. One year and one week ago, McGray was a prisoner at Mountain Institution near Agassiz. One night last November, he murdered his cellmate, 33-year-old Jeremy Phillips. When he was removed from that cell, through his own admission, he did admit to being the one responsible for this homicide. Uh, the details surrounding that and why this occurred, uh, I'm not able to go into detail about. McGray had no lawyer, no defense, just admission of guilt. RCMP aren't discussing details of the murder because McGray has 30 days to appeal and a lot of time on his hands. Phillips' family spoke out this summer, their anguish and frustration tightly controlled but not hidden. He loved life. He loved it. How does someone with the alleged murderer's background get put in a prison cell with another inmate? Phillips had pleaded to be moved out of the murderer's cell and McGray had freely said he wasn't done killing. He's a serial killer. Uh, we can't downplay that by any means. This is his seventh conviction. What we need to focus on are the families that are left behind in all of this. There is an extensive amount of pain that goes on by the families and that we don't get to see. Corrections officials have yet to say why Michael McGray was ever put in a medium security facility. He's currently residing in a much more secure institution in Quebec. He began serving his seventh life sentence on Monday.
A BC coroner's inquest was held to determine what could be taken away and changed to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. One of the recommendations? Don't give serial killers roommates. <laughs> it's pretty, like, you don't say. You don't say. <laughs> you don't say. I. We should have... <laughs> We we should have that as a T-shirt. Don't give serial killers roommates. Like seriously, <laughs> that just—it seems just so common sense, Mike. Well, common sense isn't very common, is it? You don't make friends with salad. You don't give serial killers roommates. <laughs> oh boy, Michael Wayne McGray was charged with another count of first-degree murder and the death of Jeremy Michael Phillips. From a CP article posted on CBC on October 29th, 2012, quote, and this is McGray talking, mm -hmm. I don't know why they made the mistake of putting me here. I'm not a medium inmate, McGray told a pair of homicide investigators the day after the crime. We didn't have a beef. This was all about me. It wasn't about him. It's a mental issue, he said. I had a hiatus for 15 years. I just couldn't hold back anymore. I'm a sociopath. I'm a serial killer, said the large muscular man, repeatedly telling officers, it's only a matter of time before he even kills again. <sighs> I've never been offered any help, he added. I've never been able to address it. It's an endless, vicious cycle. End quote. So I wonder if uh, part of him killing his, his cellmate was he doesn't want a cellmate. He... You know, he just wants to have his own cell. I don't know what his motivation was. Uh, whatever it was, it's it's messed up anyway. I've watched a lot of prison shows, and I know these like it can be some pretty pretty stupid reasons why they do things. Well, he was telling people he was going to kill again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had the chance, and he took it. Yeah, again, you don't uh, give serial killers roommates. You don't give serial killers roommates. Silly, hey? We're in no way making fun of Jeremy Michael Phillips' death. It's just ridiculous that that had to happen for these findings to actually come about. Come on, Corrections Canada, get your act together. Mm -hmm. Michael Wayne McGray had another 25 years added to his prison term. Since 2012, McGray's last reported address has been St. Anne de Plain Institution, and it's reputed to be the highest security prison in Canada. Good. And you can be assured he's alone in a room there. <laughs> I think so. I'm curious, though, about the other 11 murders that he's claimed responsibility for. Mm -hmm. For example, he claimed he killed and buried a homeless alcoholic in Toronto's High Park in the 90s. Okay. He says he killed prostitutes out west uh, as he traveled westward. Yeah. And people in Seattle as well. But are the victims, as we've seen many times, just not worth the trouble to authorities as they come from the lower classes. Yeah, my gut's telling me no. I'm thinking, uh, again, when somebody confesses, when you're caught and you confess and you give evidence and you're found guilty of crimes, but then there's some you don't confess to, I'm always skeptical that they later do. Unless often they well, don't... Well, it took him a while to confess to the Gale Tucker murder. No, but that's what I'm saying. Once he did, he, he opened up about all of those murders. And typically if when they don't come forward with some of them, it's because they're ones they're embarrassed about. They were children and that's not typically who they kill. Stuff like that. Yeah. Whereas if it's just kind of fits the same MO, like what what was his rationale for 
holding, you know. Like, but it, why it, don't we know who this uh, homeless alcoholic was in High Park? Why didn't they just t- say, okay, you admitted to this. Let's I, let's take you out and show us where you where you buried this guy. Well, I'm sure that they would have done things at least along that line. If he said, you know, I killed this person, homeless person back around this time. I'm sure they went and they they did research into okay, were there any homeless people found murdered around this time? And the you know, I'm sure that they did some some fairly cursory uh, work, anyways. But um, it's just curious. Yeah, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Anytime a serial killer is admitting to killing people. You you have to put some weight onto it. Yeah. yeah, unless it's Henry Lee Lucas, who, you know, that guy claimed he killed 300 people. Yes. And, and there's only proof he ever killed one. Yes. So, Ooh. I mean, Otis Toole probably was more prolific than he was, his buddy. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. It's, it, it's... There's certainly a point in confessions where you, you, you start to go, yeah, okay, I don't, mm, I'm not sure about this. When, yeah. when you're in the 300 mural. You're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Unless your previous conviction was for like 50, and then you're like, okay, well, maybe. But but look at the way McGray was doing it. He murdered his first, the first person he murdered was just, there she was. Yep. And everybody else seemed to be a victim of circumstance. He was roaming around the country for years. Yep. There were some, I mean, some pretty large periods where he was inactive, and was he? Yeah. So, no, for sure, for sure. Um there's a, a high probability he was that there are something. other, yes, he, he wasn't, uh, you know, working hard on a career. No, no, I don't think the guy ever actually had a career of any, anything to speak of. I'm going to work hard and be a longshoreman. No, I don't no. think that's what he was. He, he was wasn't putting the thief. work in. Yeah. Thanks again to our intrepid researcher, Rebecca McNall, for providing us with the research to get a good jump start on this episode. Hey, thanks, Rebecca. Yeah. Seriously. Really, really great. Great it, work. It uh, it got me, got me going to where I needed to go for sure. Love having these people helping us. Uh, and that's it for the story of Michael Wayne McGray, a monster who claims to have prowled all across our country. So people can't say that we haven't talked about Newfoundland on the show because we just did. I, and uh, <laughs> like I in my head, I'm like, no, you don't. Why do you want to? You don't want us to talk about your area. Yeah, I know. Because this means murder. But people have fascinating cases oh, that I they want us to talk about. No, for sure. Check out our show notes on darkpoutine.com for more information about this case and others, links, and photos. Uh, before we go, we want to give some shout outs to our new Patreon patrons. Woo-woo. I love this part of the show. So do I. Uh, so, Kazia Harvey. From Enmore, New South Wales, Australia. Oh. Thank you, nice lady. A great name, Kelly. Uh, Kayla, another Kayla. Kayla. Kayla Krusky from... Uh, uh, well, uh, Kayla Krusky. So she's from St. Louis. And the interesting oh. thing was when The Simpsons first started. Yes. And Krusty, the clown, oh. was a, and he opened up... But her name is Krusty. No, I know. Not Krusty. I know. This is... I'm, well, I'm getting to it. It's, okay, it's okay. fascinating okay. because... So, you know, Krusty, yeah, Krusty Burgers. Yes. And stuff like that. So uh, she was actually going to open up a chain of Krusty Burgers. Okay. But because of, you know, Krusty the clown, she thought, oh, geez, that's just like, oh, people aren't going to take it seriously. So what did she end up doing? Uh, a lawyer. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So thanks, Kayla. Don't sue us. Don't, don't, no. Cynthia Ramos from Baldwin, California, who uh, came in as another prime minister. Oh, Cynthia. Yeah. Thank you. 
Christy Browse from Calgary, Alberta. Hey, Christy, thank you. Amanda Wilder from Reading, Massachusetts. Oh, Amanda. Uh, Stacy Wolf Weglechner from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and it's not East or West Dakota. No, no, this like one we talked about yeah, last week. No, this is South. This South, is South Dakota. Dakota. Stacy from uh, yes. South Dakota. South Dakota. Say hi I to, have been to North Dakota, but I have not been to South Dakota. Say hi to my friends in East Dakota. Oh boy. Nicole Recker from Maple Shade, New Jersey. What is with that name? I love it. Maple Shade. Maple Shade. Nicole from Maple Shade. It sounds very uh, residential. It sounds very lovely. Yes. Like they, I don't think any crime has ever happened in Maple Shade. I'm pretty certain Tony Soprano lived there. Eh, whatever. Jenny Bovard from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and now I'm homesick again. Good job, Jenny. <laughs> Nancy Tresh Renault from Russell, Kentucky. Oh, hey, Nancy. Kiara Page from Siloam Spring, Arizona. Hey, Kiara. Zoe Barber. We yeah. Don't, we don't know where she's from, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, not the Laughing Barber. She's not the Laughing Barber. What's the Laughing Barber? I don't know. That's something I heard once on the internet. Oh, it's some, but she's not the boozing barber either. The, no, 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 the not who no. We talked about. You don't want to be connected with that, but, but but barber isn't spelled the same way as barber. It's spelled more like harbor. No, no, I know. I, I can, yeah, but so so the other thing I always like. I know a Zoe. It's spelled the same as Zoe. It's spelled, so I don't. I, I always struggle with. Is it? And I even said that to my friend. I'm like, is it Zoe or is it Zoe? Because it's like, it's like, how do I... Well, she had an umlaut over the E, so that's why I said Zoe. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. Zoe's the way to go. Sorry to all the Zoes out there. There you go. Beth Bollinger? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beth Bollinger. You Mm -hmm. you don't remember her? No. No. It's not Karim's... No, no, no. No, it's not. No, Beth Bollinger. Uh, She was the mayor uh, of Tahiti. Tahiti is, isn't Tahiti like a... It's a delicious drink, by the way. Tahiti treat. I don't know. I don't I don't know how to answer that, Scott. Well, you should answer it with what a beautiful place. I love Tahiti. Tahiti. And she has been noted as the best mayor. It makes Tahiti's. me want to go and get a, a tan. And when I hear Tahiti, I also think of Tahiti. Tahiti. <laughs> Tahiti. But keep, keep, up, keep up the good marrying. Beth. Beth. Thank you, Beth. Uh, Angela Silzer from Melville, Saskatchewan. Hey, Angela. And another PM who we just talked to on a live show. She has produced a documentary about Wyerton Willie. Yep. And that is Jennifer Krakowski from the Big T.O. Tarana. Jennifer! Yo! Thank you so much to our patrons past and present for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash dark poutine or for one-time support you can send us some donut money via paypal at our email dark podcast at gmail.com if you don't already it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to our show you can easily find us on itunes podcast google play stitcher tune in spotify or wherever you get your on-demand audio check out our website www.darkpoutine.com for our show notes and other cool stuff. Which Mike added a new uh, feature to. You can find all of our uh, other... Appearances. Other appearances and stuff yep, on there. We'll be adding Fear of Science episode once that's oh, that, up. I'm excited. That was fun. I think it's coming on the 15th of oh, February. Okay, I hope so. It's fun. Yeah, they're funny guys. Oh, they're great. Please give us a follow or a like 
on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Had a lot of uh, people uh, posting stories in their stories about us on Instagram, and I just... As soon as I see it, I just add it to our story every yeah. single time. I was telling you about how uh, we had a fairly big deal wrestler. Uh, you shared one; she shared us on a story, and then you shared that. And uh, uh, Allie from Impact yeah. Wrestling. Yeah, I was surprised to see somebody with so many followers uh, talking about us. That's, it's so awesome! It's so awesome that and and I reached out to thank her, and she's just a super super nice person. I hope she, she doesn't play like a heel or something, and I just spoiled that. But uh, no, she was super thankful, and uh, that was really awesome, yeah, Allie. Thank you. Uh, most importantly about our show is please tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Join our closed Facebook group called the Yumber Yard. It's full of good eggs who call themselves Yumberjacks or Yumber Yaks, if you must. And this week's promo comes to us from our longtime pal, Jamie, from the Murderish podcast. Oh, Jamie. And here she is. Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened. And I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish, as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app, hit subscribe, and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Thanks for that, Jamie. Woo-woo. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Guten Tag. Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. 
Dark City, The Cleaner, all new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.